to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. My name is Misha DeVogel, and I'm from the Australian Army History Unit. Saving the lives of fellow mariners in distress is one of the unwritten laws of sailors over the centuries. Following South Vietnam's surrender to the Communist North in 1975, more than a million people fled the country. Their escape route was mainly via the South China Sea. It is estimated, however, that about 300,000 people perished, claimed by treacherous seas, attacks by pirates or exposure to the elements. The Royal Australian Navy was involved in the rescue of Vietnamese refugees, either in the South China Sea or in the waters off northern Australia. In this episode, we discuss one such rescue that occurred 40 years ago this year. On the 21st of June 1981, the Navy's fleet flagship, the aircraft carrier HMAS Melbourne, and the frigate Torrens rescued 99 men, women and children in a perilous rescue from the stricken 14-metre fishing boat, the Nui Hung, in the South China Sea. They became known as the Melbourne Group 99, or MG 99 for short. To talk about those dramatic events, I'm joined by two officers from the Melbourne and one of the rescued refugees. They are Commander John Ingram, a specialist logistics officer in the Navy serving in six ships of the RAN, including both Melbourne and Torrens, that feature in this podcast. Ever since the Vietnam War in April 1975, he has been involved in an honorary capacity with the refugee cause, for which he was the recipient of the Medal of the Order of Australia in 2014. John is joining us from Port Macquarie. Captain Joe Maurice, who was the executive officer of the Melbourne at the time of the rescue, is also with us today from the Southern Highlands. Earlier, he had been the commissioning captain of the training ship Jarvis Bay. As a junior officer, Joe specialised in navigation. And last but not least, Mr Stephen Nguyen, who was a survivor of the Nhi Hung. He settled in Sydney and became a successful businessman. For the last 50 years, he's been a member and now conductor of his church's choir. He's coming to us from Sydney today. Thank you all for joining me. First off, to set the scene, Stephen, what was your situation and why were you leaving the country? At the time of the fall of Saigon, I was 15, very young man at the time. And, uh, but I had a bit of experience about the war when uh, the fist fighting um, happened around my place. And uh, it also was the time I first, uh, um, first time to see Viet Cong to go really from the, the jungle. And uh, of course it was really scary, especially my parents who once escaped uh, the North uh, to the South for freedom in 1954. So um, uh, it was a bit panic uh, when it happened to the South in uh, 1975, it's too late for them to escape. and. Um, and myself, I lived uh, under the communist uh, regime for six years. Um, we thought that all the basic um, freedom uh, gone, all um, the human rights that I had before 1975 uh, came to a stop. Uh, there were no freedom of uh, speech travel or voting or practicing religion, uh, all been abolished uh, after 1975. And um, 100,000 people um, uh, ended up in concentration camps, especially the, the men, the fathers of the families, 100,000 of them, and uh, 
and there's a big number of them die at camp for hard labor or for um, being executed uh, by um, uh, their effort to escape the camp. And, uh, and at the time, the picture of the killing field uh, in the Cambodia, um, it happened at the same time. Uh, the Khmer Rouge killed half of them uh, population. This, um, this make the Vietnamese people um, um, really scary uh, when they think about the new uh, uh, rulers in Vietnam. And um, they make a, a million people try to escape the regime uh, uh, for seeking freedom. And uh, I, I was also a Catholic people. I am a Catholic person. And as you know that a million people, Catholic people, escaped the, uh, from the north to south in, uh, in 1954. And uh, they, they, they treated them as enemy after that. So that's why, um, as a Catholic, um, uh, I was very, very worried. Um, so I was among a million people who escaped the country at that time for those reasons. As a follow-on, Stephen, can you tell us something of your boat, its captain, and your fellow, and your fellow passengers? You know, I was um, a city young man. i never been in the boat for a long journey or never been out at sea. On the escape day, I will secretly arrange and place onto a wooded boat. The arrangement is made by my father with the strangers. Uh, the boat was about 11 meters long and 2.7 meters wide. And I didn't know anyone on board except my younger brother who was 15 at the time. Once I got on board, uh, after one day, two days, I knew who in who. I knew the Miss, um, Mr. Tam Nguyen, who is the captain of the, the, the boat and few more people. And uh, Mr. Tam is an um, very experienced uh, seaman, but this time he took a big risk. He risked when decided to bring along um, his whole family to escape. Um, in my case, my family make four trips of escaping and three survived, one fell. My eldest sister and other 50 companions perished at sea in 1983. My sister was Catholic nun. She escaped with my uncle, who is grandfather of comedian Ando. They both perished at sea at that time. And, uh, and then later on, when I got on board the HMS Melbourne, then I know exactly how many people on board. It was um, in total of 99 people. Joe Maurice, why were Melbourne and Torrens in the South China Sea in June 1981? Misha, we were uh, <coughs> returning from Hong Kong where we'd spent a, uh, a self-maintenance period. The three ships, Melbourne, Supply and Torrens, 
were members of a task group which had been deployed to the uh, Indian Ocean and the uh, West Pacific or South China Sea from April through till July. And on this particular day, um, uh, we had uh, supply, we had fueled from HMAS supply and uh, were conducting uh, flying operations in the afternoon. Um, the pilots uh, had to regain their qualifications because of the time spent alongside in uh, Hong Kong and uh, we were conducting uh, surveillance operations um, and deck landing practice as well. And before arriving in Singapore, we were due to take part in an exercise called Starfish, which was under the auspices of the Firepower Defence um, Agreement, namely Australia, Malaysia, New Zealand, United Kingdom and Singapore. Great. Uh, could you tell us something about the two captains of the ships? Yes, uh, Commodore Hudson and uh, Captain Mike Raymond uh, had both been members of the Flinders year, joining the Royal Australian Naval College uh, in 1947. And um, we'll take Michael Hudson first. Uh, he was uh, quite a high flyer. He uh, had command of four ships, Melbourne being the last one. He um, commanded the Australian fleet and he reached the pinnacle of being chief of naval staff uh, from where he, was, he uh, retired in the rank of admiral. I think he retired in the rank of admiral, which was quite unusual to be promoted um, on retirement uh, because the position of chief of defence force wasn't available to him at the time. So, um, yes, he, and on graduating from the Naval College, he was awarded the King's Medal as well as the Governor-General's Cup, uh, the former for being a good influence and the second for being a good uh, sportsman. Um, he saw active service in Korea and Malaysia. Um, and uh, the ships he was in command of before the Melbourne were Vendetta, Brisbane and Stalwart. Unfortunately, he died or he lost his fight with cancer in 1971 at the age of, sorry, in 2005 at the age of 71. Mike Raymond, as I said, joined the Navy with uh, Mike Hudson in 1947. He was the son of a naval veteran of World War II, uh, his father having died of wounds in the Battle of the Leyte Gulf. Mike saw active service in Malaysia and Vietnam, and he also enjoyed command of four ships. It's quite pretty unusual to have command of four ships in one's career. Uh, Mike's ships were the Emu, the Snipe, Swan, and finally the Torrens. Following uh, HMAS Hobart's deployment, uh, Vietnam when he was the uh, ship's executive officer. Mike was awarded a Naval Board commendation for skill and leadership. He was appointed as a member of the Order of Australia and retired in the rank of Commodore. Mike uh, is now in his 88th year and currently resides in Canberra. Um, I think that's probably about all I can tell you about them. Oh, also, uh, Mike Hudson, um, was appointed as a, a companion of the uh, sorry a companion of the Order of Australia uh, before retirement. That gives us some idea, John. Um, John Ingram, refugees at sea is a sensitive issue today. What was the Australian government attitude in 1981, and did the ships expect to encounter any refugees on their passage? Yes, um, the guidance that we had. <laughs> 
relevant at the time was to render whatever assistance was deemed appropriate. And secondly, only in ex extreme or threatening situations were we permitted to embark refugees. A, a sort of typical situation would be, for example, if the vessel had been immobilised for some time or had exhausted its fuel supplies or was under attack, for example, by Thai pirates. Now, in, in our case of rendering assistance, initially we thought that would consist of providing fuel, foodstuffs, potable water supplies and so on, and then sending the boat on its merry way. But, of course, um, with the Nia Hung, the vessel was deemed to be immobilised and, and in a parlous state. And um, consequently, the command decided that uh, the refugees, in our case, would be taken to either Singapore or failing Singapore to Darwin. In other words, to the closest port of a country being a signatory to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees Charter. We'll go back to the voyage now. Stephen, can you please describe the voyage in the Nihong? Yes. Um, we left Vietnam on the, uh, the 16th of June, 1981, in a very, um, very rough sea condition right at the bay. But we have no choice to stop once the people gathering at the uh, uh, at the big boat because uh, it's, it was so dangerous to uh, to turn the people back. So we have to keep going. Very, very, uh, very much worry to see uh, the condition of uh, the ocean out there. And uh, and then we had to do, we headed to the ocean at night time. Um, we tried to slip through the checkpoint at bay, and uh, that was the most dangerous uh, inland moment. And once we uh, we faced the ocean, we accelerated. We tried to get far uh, as far as we could. And in the morning, in the next morning, we uh, we did believe that we uh, uh, we had reached to the international uh, world about, uh, boundary and was on the part of uh, the passing uh, regional merchant ships. Um, we wait uh, up there for a while. And then on second day, uh, the main engine was broken uh, and the storms came. We, en uh, we encountered swelling and horrible sea at that time. Uh, we have to use uh, the small spare engines, which much smaller in size, and of course in horsepower. And um, but uh, only a few hours later, the second one was also out of work. We let the boat uh, adrift for a few days in the condition of a stormy sea. Um, most of the passengers uh, couldn't bear the, the, the rough. They vomited, uh, they've uh, been dehydrated after one or two days. There's a number of them just lie down on the, on the deck 
on the floor deck and uh, the food ration uh, to be survived for 10 days uh, at, at sea was um, a scoop of boiled rice and a little of a uh, little bit of uh, soy sauce for everyone for each day and um, and the fresh uh, compartment uh, fresh water compartment um, were also contaminated by uh, salt water uh, when they um, they faced uh, the high waves swept over the floor and uh, get into the compartment and uh, we have to catch the water from the rain from the storm to uh, to survive to survive and um, and during the voyage, uh, we saw some passing uh, merchant ships. They were huge. And uh, of course we shot up the flares, uh, but they didn't stop. Uh, we were very, very scared when sometime our boat uh, encounters the big waves. Uh, the waves um, swallows very very easy and uh, one moment the wedge uh, swept over the deck and they swept down to the sea some hatches and uh, some men young men uh, on the deck were very lucky that the huge uh, the huge waves didn't collect them and um, that is um, uh, what i can describe Joe Maurice, while these events were unfolding, what were the Melbourne and the Torrens doing? Oh, well, uh, 21st of June 1981 was a Sunday, and this was by no means a day of rest. I, I guess we, um, having spent uh, a couple of weeks alongside in Hong Kong, we'd had our rest, and uh, in the morning, the uh, Ships refueled from HMAS Supply for commencing flying operations. Uh, as I said before, the reason for uh, flying operations was because the uh, pilots need to regain their qualifications. The object then was to proceed at fast routing speed to uh, be within um, aircraft diversion range of Singapore by evening the next day. At the same time, ST, S2G uh, tracker aircraft were... Uh, launched on surveillance patrols. And in the morning, one of these uh, aircraft sighted a uh, vessel in distress, which led to the recovery of about 30 people by a passing merchant ship. Later in the day, uh, when Melbourne was turning into the wind to recover aircraft before sunset, Tracker 851 reported sighting another vessel in distress about, 90, about nine miles from the Melbourne. The weather at the time was... Uh, not the best, but it was suitable for, flighting, uh, for flying. Sea conditions were uh, moderate with a five-foot swell. Right. So uh, what was Commodore uh, Hudson's response in, to the sighting of the Nya Hong? Well, Melbourne was recovering aircraft at the time of that sighting, which was about uh, 6 o'clock in the evening, 1807, I think was the precise time. Uh, the captain's initial response was to dispatch Torrens, to investigate uh, and to transfer Melbourne's medical officer, Surgeon Commander John Anderson, uh, to the Torrens by helicopter. After the state of the vessel and its occupants had been assessed, 
was decided to embark all the refugees um, uh, in the Melbourne. I think initially um, the estimate of the number of refugees on board the Nihong was uh, 20 to 50, but on closer inspection by the Torrens boarding party, it was determined they were over 90. And as you heard before, the final number was 99. So, John, what preparations were being made on board your, your, uh, as both ships closed the New Hong? Yes, this was uh, late in the afternoon. Um, initially, we'd been informed that um, because of the small number of uh, tor- uh, refugees sighted on bo- in the um, refugee boat by Torrens, um, I'd been told there were around about 20 or 30. Torrens would be uh, assigned the task of delivering then the refugees directly to Singapore. As a precaution, I'd ordered the opening up of two 40-foot shipping containers, which we'd embarked in Sydney before deploying. These were known in Navy terms as a Type A and a Type B shipping container, which were housed in the after section of the hangar decks. The Type A was full of uh, refrigerated, perishable items, mainly food items and medical supplies. The Type B contained dry products, such as bedding, uh, netting material, axes, hammers, all those sorts of things that might be required should we have have to put a a landing party ashore somewhere to help a country or an area that had been afflicted, say, by an earthquake or by a tsunami. Uh, As a precaution, I inspected these two containers to make sure that the uh, contents were, were in good shape, which they were. Uh, we had also embarked prior to leaving Sydney a number of items such as uh, women's clothing, toiletries, health products, toys, books and so on and so forth for distribution in to uh, some of the uh, refugee camps uh, that we had in mind, uh, such as the two camps in, um, in Hong Kong and the one camp in, in, uh, in Singapore. Um, this would be an act from the Ship's Welfare Fund of sailors' funds, donated funds, non-public funds, um, as part of the, um, the Navy's goodwill measures. I had visions that these would be required to be transferred to the Torrens, but um, what happened when uh, Surgeon Commander John Anderson reported that there were 90-plus refugees on board, the command in the Melbourne made the decision that we would be the rescue ship. And uh, consequently, I was called to the bridge and uh, told to make preparations accordingly. Um, We had at that stage about 90 minutes notice only. um, And I'd been directed to take charge of the onboard management liaise with my fellow heads of departments, such as Joe Maurice as the executive officer and the surgeon commander, and also take charge of the administrative matters relating to the the various governments involved, such as Singapore in this case, and the Australian government, port authorities, and UNHCR agencies. So Stephen, what was the state of the people on board your ship as you waited to see if the flares were alerting any any passing ships? Yes, uh, as you know, that most of the um, the people sat down underneath of the deck for the whole journey. Uh, myself, I um, I had to stay there for two days before 
I was allowed to go up the, and stay on the deck. Um, and, uh, and then there was only the people on the deck sitting or standing had the chance to see the passing merchant ships. And uh, once we saw them, of course, we shut up the flare and uh, with eager and joyful with hopes. But uh, when the ships ignore us and passing by, even when the flare shot up, the echoes of the screaming from us in the middle of the ocean at night time were holding sound. I, I am still being obsessed by those sounds till now. And uh, definitely the boat would be capsized in such condition of stormy sea in the next few weeks, uh, in the next few days. Uh, we, uh, we did believe that and uh, we just uh, didn't know when uh, it would happen. So at what point did you realize that rescue was at hand? Um, you know, after four days drifting, in the afternoon of the 21st of June, 1981, Sunday afternoon, uh, we saw a black spot flown out from the horizon. We, reali we realized it was aeroplane, but still a bit worried uh, because it could be uh, belong to a Soviet bloc aeroplane and uh, we would be in trouble. We shot up the last flare and burned racks to alert the plane. And it flown over our head and make a circle, then back to where it was. We prayed, we hoped, and then few minutes, few minutes later, there was another black spot came out from that direction. And this time, it was a bit lower and slower. We know exactly it was a helicopter. And when it hovered above our head, we saw the word Navy on the side of the copter. Then we know that definitely we would be rescued. Joe Maurice, can you talk us through the efforts to get the refugees on board the ships? Yes, uh, sure. um, the sea conditions are such that uh, Melbourne was positioned upwind of the um, of the Torrens, with the ships about uh, one thousand yards apart. The boats used were uh, Melbourne's and Torrens Gemini boats, as well as their small craft, rubber rubber duckies, I think they call them, and uh, Melbourne's utility boat which is probably about a 30-foot boat, I think. Um, initially, uh, the transfer was made uh, uh, scrambling up a, what we sometimes call a scrambling net, or in this case, called a uh, drifting ladder. Um, that proved uh, a little bit unsafe, a little bit difficult, particularly for some of the uh, refugees and the sailors carrying some refugees. So... 
to make it more safe and more reliable, um, we used what was called a helicopter strop. And so we hauled them up uh, on board that. Um, so, uh, yes, um, let me, uh, well, sorry, I should mention here, especially the first lieutenant. Lieutenant Commander Liz Smith was a very experienced officer and uh, regrettably he died uh, not long after this operation. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning that uh, his professionalism his experience as a seaman officer is to be utterly commended on this occasion. The process of transferring embarking 99 men, women and children lasted approximately two, two hours, uh, completed at 21.45, 9.45 in the evening. I'm sure that John and uh, Stephen would like to add any comments to that uh, part of the rescue. John, would you like to go ahead? I was... Um immensely impressed and proud of the command decision to embark. I was elated when the numbers involved meant that uh, embarkation would occur in Melbourne because I'd been privately disappointed that my experience and background and qualifications uh, in the refugee movement in, uh, in Australia, Vietnam and in the United States uh, wouldn't be put to test on this occasion. But um, as I said, I was I was very happy when the decision was made to to uh, embark in our ship. Uh, that gave me the opportunity to demonstrate the hum- humanitarian operational logistics, uh, which I in which I'd been trained, and I was determined that um, we would not let the command down, and hence I made sure that I was at the recovery point to welcome every man, woman and child on board. Stephen, would you like to give us some insight into your perspectives? Mm. You know that every time we talk about this story, I feel like I'm back to the very, very hard time, the life and death moment which I encountered and experienced. The rescue of the of the Nihung by HMS Melbourne and Torrance at that time. We we always thinking that we we've been as the lucky people who've been rescued at sea at such horrible and unbelievable stormy sea. Uh, Normally no one can overcome such um, such thing at sea, but we we were very lucky to be rescued. John Ingram, what was happening on board the Melbourne to provide assistance to everyone once on board and on passage? Oh, in short, a great deal. And I'll try to keep this uh, straightforward as I can, but we hadn't invented the word triage at that, at that stage, but um, but we had a rapid triage at the established at the recovery point, which was well forward on the right-hand side, or in sailor term, the starboard side of the ship, uh, immediately above the, the ladder arrangement where 
people were being hoisted on board either on the shoulders or on the chests of uh, able sailors uh, and, where possible, strapped in the helicopter recovery strops. Now, these, uh, remember, were emaciated, dehydrated, seasick refugees aged from just six months to 65 years. On board a carrier at that time, our onboard facilities were very limited. And uh, as Joe had mentioned, we were participating in a five-nation maritime exercise, operating aircraft night and day. Conditions were very hot, humid and trying. Now, as, they became, as personnel became available, uh, we appointed three of them as translators. They were all young Vietnamese women, uh, equipped them with tannoys to explain, that's loudspeakers, to explain, reassure confused refugees as they came on board. Uh, we had uh, voluntary off-duty sailors who um, made themselves available to accompany the refugees, in some cases carrying them to the sick bay for me urgent medical treatment, in other cases to the senior sailors' cafeteria for rehydration and for feeding. Others were just too weary and once rehydrated and checked by medical and dental personnel, they were positioned on the forecastle or the the bat towards the bow of, a, of an aircraft carrier, which is a rather exposed position. It has the flight deck overhead, but large openings in the ship's side. It wasn't ideal, but at least there we could provide the security and the personal safety that was required. And there we had laid out 60, our full, uh, 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 our full uh, uh, outfit of stretchers, supplemented by mattresses, and adequate bedding uh, on this windswept space. And we had to position cargo nets across all the open spaces because of the fact that we had uh, 29 children and what we were worried about, young children might be swept, blown or inadvertently step over the side. So safety and security was paramount in my mind it would have been a deplorable situation had we embarked everybody on board only to lose somebody through accident, falling down a hatch, falling over the side or being swept over the side. Our electrical staff had equipped supplementary security lighting in that area. The senior sailors galley, cafeteria and ablution facilities had been quickly cleared and made available. I had closed up the galley staff to prepare emergency meals, suitable meals. My manuscript instructions had, had firstly to be translated into Vietnamese and Cantonese. They were then broadcast on the Tanoi by our three female translators and the notices were posted on our notice board throughout the ship. I also went to some pain to try to explain in basic terms the ship's routine, what we were doing, why there'd be very large bangs every now and then, because that would be the flight deck catapult operating, that type of thing. And of course, also the noise of aircraft uh, immediately above on the flight deck. 
I had an army of off-duty voluntary sailors to, uh, who stepped forward to guide refugees to assigned spaces, the sleeping spaces, to the feeding spaces, the cafeterias, the galley, sick bay, and so forth. Uh, we'd opened up the ship's clothing store so that uh, suitable replacement clothing and footwear could be provided that evening, the first evening on board, so that their, the refugees' own clothing could be, which in most cases was uh, smelling of, of uh, diesel, sick, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and it was important to get them out of those wet clothes, smelly clothes, into decent clothing and try to restore their dignity and respect as soon as possible. We offered free toiletries, soft drinks, etc., from the canteen. The showers and laundry arrangements were made available together with all the products that were necessary. And one of the difficulties I did have, of course, was trying to explain that an aircraft carrier has water restrictions and that uh, three-minute showers were the maximum. In a carrier, there's also the problem of a lot of fuel, aircraft, etc., etc. So I had to explain that there would be no smoking or naked lights at all. We had uh, appointed three teams of ship's personnel with the communi ship's communications officer in charge. Uh, each team with a translator to process, to begin the long task of processing essential paperwork. The ship's photographic sailors uh, took iconic photographs and mugshots for visas passport purposes and also as required by Singapore authorities and the UNHCR. While all this was going on, each refugee was being checked for health and dental inspections and emergency treatments. Uh, that was all required by the Singapore government before our, before our arrival in Singapore port. I was also concerned about the welfare and integration with the ship's company, both of which I deemed important. Um, the ship's band provided um, a jazz group and concerts for children, which proved to be extremely popular and all part of the integration process. The chapel was made available and the two chaplains embarked provided uh, assistance as required. Uh, we even had a sort of situation where after the first night, those able young men stepped forward and said that they would like to assist in cleaning tasks and working part of ship. And I saw that as, um, as a way of further integrating our newly arrived passengers with the ship's company. And that went down particularly well. I even had young women coming forward to sweep passageways, clean cafeterias, set up the tables for, for meals. Some even wanted to, um, to help in the preparation of food uh, and even the cooking of food. I was a little bit discouraged about that because they weren't trained in, um, in temperature control and so on, which is so important in a, in a warship. We also had uh, tours of ships by voluntary by voluntary sailors, and this went down particularly well because I was keen that we, the mind and bodies be kept active 
instilling safety and security while restoring their confidence and dignity. Turning now, turning now Can to... Can I just uh, add to that, Misha? Yes, of course, please. Yes, um, listening to what John had to say, uh, I'm sure we'd agree that the rescue operation was probably a simple uh, operation as opposed to the three or four days following it. Uh, John's team did uh, a great job, had uh, no lack of volunteers. And just one uh, one side story uh, which uh, amused me, written by one of the survivors, uh, she was given an apple. She'd never seen an apple before, and I think she's been eating them since. Would that be right, Stephen? Yes, let's see Cork soon. Yeah. <laughs> we also had the orange arm, too. She's uh, she's um, even uh, seen um, a Western guy before. <laughs> <laughs> Scary of the, the orange uh, hair. <laughs> <laughs> when she was lifted on board the ship. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Turning, da- turning now to the next steps, Joe Maurice, what was the official response to the rescue and where were the refugees put ashore? Well, I think uh, John and Stephen could probably best answer the latter part of that, uh, uh, Misha. And uh, being in Singapore, when the refugees were embarked, we were not privy to all the publicity, or very little of it anyway, which was generated in Australia. So if I could defer to John, and, uh, who had a major part in uh, in that aspect, uh, John? Yes, most definitely. We were met on arrival by um, officials from the Singapore government. They were health secure, they were mainly health or medical staff, security staff, police, the paramilitary, um, representatives of the UNHCR uh, and port authorities. The, the Australian High Commission had arranged for buses to be alongside uh, to take our refugees to the Hawkins Road refugee camp, which was the only one in Singapore, and it was under the management or auspices of the UNHCR. The um, the refugees themselves were a little reluctant to leave the ship because it had brought them the, the security, and there were quite a few wet eyes as they departed. Um, once uh, the formalities had been completed, it was getting towards lunchtime, so we did provide lunch, uh, which hadn't been planned in the original originally, but I think that went down well. And um, uh, the transfer of personnel ashore went seamlessly, I, I must say. Uh, I had been fearing some, some delays, but um, Surgeon Commander John Anderson and his and his medical team on board had been thorough in their in their processing of their paperwork, and in the uh, and in the treatment and uh, taking X-rays, etc., of everybody to make sure that tuberculosis and other diseases were not being transferred into uh, into the camp at um, at Hawkins Road. So there was a lot happening on that Friday morning. It, it, it was an emotional time. Um, lots of fond farewells. Uh, many of the refugees, I, in fact, I'd probably say most, um, had made friends on board, very lasting friends, and some have existed to this day, 40 years uh, forty years 
have now passed, but those friendships remain. And I think as a result of programs such as this, uh, those friendships will be reignited. I, um, I had the pleasure, in fact, of um, visiting the Hawkins Road camp in the few days that we were in Singapore. Uh, I think, in fact, I made four trips and we transferred around about two tonnes of dry provisions predominantly to the UNHCR camp, where it was explained to me this, these foodstuffs and materials would not be for the ex exclusive use um, of uh, the MG99 personnel, but we would donate them to, to the camp. At that stage, the camp was formally approved for 10,000 refugees. To my horror, when I got there, I discovered that there were 15,000. And uh, the authorities wished me to give them an undertaking that the Australian government and other governments involved, such as the United States and the Canadian government, would have them all transferred to those to those accepting nations within four to six weeks. I gave that assurance, um, even though I had no authority to do so, and, and then pleaded with our High Commission personnel to do whatever was needed to ensure this occurred, and in fact it did. And, and I was delighted that um, the 77 who elected to, uh, to come to Australia were in Sydney, in, um, in two camps in Sydney, uh, before we in the Melbourne returned to our own home port. Stephen, would Please you mind... I should add that uh, when you say official response, uh, it was simply one of approval and... Uh, perhaps a, bit, a little bit of commendation. But um, in terms of publicity, I think uh, it should be it probably safely said that uh, the 40th anniversary of this uh, event has probably uh, brought about more publicity than, uh, than it did at the time. I, I think that's true, Joe, in the sense that um, in those days, of course, we had no way to digitally transfer photographs. And the Australian media and defence publicity wanted, wanted photographs uh, the only way we could get photographs done to them, in fact, was by air. And that was a matter of a few days. And, of course, a few days is a long time when it comes to newspapers and magazines, etc. The story, The story was quite, quite old by the time the photographs arrived and were available for distribution. Stephen, would you mind taking us through what happened once you arrived in Singapore? Um, yes, uh, we stay on board of HMS Melbourne for five days and five nights, then disembarked the ship on the 26th of the June 1981. Uh, we were transferred by buses to the Singapore refugee camp. Um, and we, we, um, uh, we were handed into the care of uh, the uh, United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, and uh, I, I do believe that uh, all the members um, at that moment, we have uh, a mixed feeling. Uh, uh, we were very joyful to uh, come to the camp and we can see our future from then. But we also very, very sad. It is sad for us to leave, to leave the ship, to leave our saviors, our, um, the officers, 
and sailors. We uh, really didn't know when we would have a chance to see them again. And then during the time we stay at camp, this number of the officers and sailors pay a visit to us. And uh, that's the last chance we see them before uh, we be uh, uh, um, accepted to resettle in Australia in July. And, uh, you know, the life at camp was a beautiful period for us uh, when we, we were the first time to live in a free society uh, after years of being under oppression uh, by the communist uh, uh, rulers in Vietnam. And uh, we, we were under the immigration process to be accepted to resettle in, uh, in Australia. And uh, 70, uh, 77 of us uh, arrived in Sydney in, on the 29th of July, 1981. And uh, 22 artists members went to America and Canada to reunite with their uh, families. Stephen, J- John noted that there's a special bond with all those who sailed in the Nihong. What can you tell of their experiences in Australia? Uh, um, yes, um, there is uh, a special bond between uh, the members. Uh, we are a lucky group. Um, uh, we have a chance to resettle in the same city, uh, in the big number of the members. And uh, as the leader of the group for years, um, I have been able to bring everyone together and organize um, uh, any special uh, event for them, for us. And uh, 40 years uh, living in this country, uh, we have worked uh, so hard to gain what we have today. And um, the second generation with full of lives, full of success and uh, full of contribution to this country uh, is our pride. Uh, we are always thinking of uh, about how lucky we were uh, to be rescued 40 years ago. And um, without um, the compassion, uh, without the professionalism, uh, without the bravery of uh, the Navy crew, we might all ended up in uh, a different way, in a different story. So now living in Australia, as a big group, we try to keep uh, um, the bond. Uh, what uh, we have lucky um, have uh, always upheld. To conclude, I'd like to ask the panel for their thoughts on the legacy of the Nihong rescue. Can I start with John? Yes, it's um, thanks to Stephen that um, we inherited a unique and homogenous group in the MG99. And I believe that they can proudly wear that label. Australia is, a, in particular, is the beneficiary of these talented, industrious folk who've demonstrated their worth to their adopted homeland. To me, it was a story of success. Their escape from wars and persecution, their long internments in re-education camps, the deprivation of their liberties, 
the perils of the stormy seas that we've uh, we've heard about this morning, a miraculous night recovery by two RAN ships and Fleet Air Arm aircraft, in which not a single injury was sustained. In general, it could be summarised as converting hope into reality. From the position of the rescuers, we'd created a model rescue and recovery operation in the finest traditions of the sea and the Royal Australian Navy in particular. Joe Maurice, would you like to make some comments? Well, very difficult to improve on that, uh, Misha. Um, from the point of the view of the rescue, uh, it was a, a well-coordinated exercise, uh, as it turned out to be very successful. I think uh, it's also got to be said that uh, uh, quite extraordinary that uh, 99 people in that condition not only survived days at sea in very uh, demanding conditions, but uh, also survived uh, the whole exercise through you know, the three or four days on board and getting back to Australia. But uh, from a refugee point of view, I think they're a good example of a, a group who've settled in Australia. Uh, of course, there are many thousands, if not uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees. Uh, but this particular group uh, we're very proud of and uh, delighted that they've succeeded so well. And last but not least, Stephen, could you please uh, give us your thoughts on the legacy of EMG 99? Okay. Uh, looking back to uh, the Nihong story, uh, we have found so many things that we can call legacy. The fate of over 200,000 Vietnamese people perished at sea at the time was a big lesson to all of us. Refugee people are those who are in need, who are in danger, who are threatened by brutal regimes like IS or communist. No one wants to leave the country unless the land is unsafe. Do we have compassion enough to open our arms? like we did before. Another thing, the contribution of the immigrants to this country throughout the years have been huge. The picture of the multicultural society for what we are having now is the best harmonic image I have seen. Finally, I would also like to mention to mention the value of freedom. No one gives you freedom. You have to fight for it. Once you have obtained it, you must protect it at all costs, even risking your life for it. Thank you. Sadly, that's all we have time for. My specific thanks to John Ingram, Joe Maurice and Stephen Nguyen. This podcast has been produced by the Naval Studies Group and the Creative Media Unit at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. 
Thank you for joining us. And if you liked this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.